everybody, this is Nathan here with Jake, and you're about to listen to what we call Sound of Sanity 1.0. Now, Jake, what do we mean when we say Sanity 1.0? Well, Sound of Sanity was a show we'd been wanting to do for a really long time, and we'd never really seen our way clear to getting it off the ground. Right, so one day we decided the best way to get it off the ground was just to sit down, hit record, three friends talking into microphones. Since that time, the show has changed and grown a whole lot. The modern version of Sound of Sanity really began to develop around episode 34 on Jordan B. Peterson. Yeah, there's some stuff we're really proud of in this early iteration of this show and some stuff we're possibly, probably, maybe not so proud of. But there's some good stuff and we wanted to leave these up. Plus, we thought it'd be fun for people who know the current show to go back and see how far the show's come. Yeah, fun and maybe sometimes a little humbling. No doubt. Anyway, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the current version of the show. That's right. And meanwhile, please enjoy this episode from the archives. You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. How do we build God's kingdom without building our own? That's the question we're going to ask today on The Sound of Sanity. And my name, is, of course, is Nathan Oberson, your humble and obedient host, joining you for another episode of The Sound of Sanity, here with my good friend, Pastor Jacob Mensel, the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of Warhorn Media. How are you doing today, Jake? I'm doing really well. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing fantastic. So good. Sweet. So sweet of you to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of sweetness, a man who defines sweetness for a generation... <laughs> a generation of listeners to Sound of Sanity. Sweetness wrapped in, like, sweetness is the chalupa shell. What is the meat inside the chalupa? It's manliness. It's the strength. It's courage. It's fighting for truth with the delicious sauce of winsome podcast dialogue. That's who he is. If you were to define the chalupa that Ben Solzer, our beloved personal assistant <laughs> I can never production I can never remember that's what not what I do <laughs> that's the chalupa that he is Ben you like the chalupas I, I guess so yeah I'm lost in kind of metaphorical chalupa world now Nathan so I don't know how to think about this anymore well that's enough dilly dallying Ben today Sorry we are that. men on a mission and our mission is to play for you an interview that happened I'm afraid our beloved production assistant could not be there because it was done very last minute when we realized we had a window and a busy man schedule and we took it our production assistant was not there to produce so I had to run the board but what happened was we did an interview with Pastor Tim Bailey true or false Jake very true who is Pastor Tim Bailey a pray tell Pastor Tim Bailey is a senior pastor of Clearnote Church right here in Bloomington, Indiana, which makes him the senior pastor of us. That is correct. And he is the author of Daddy Tried, Overcoming the Failures of Fatherhood, which uh, Warhorn Media released last summer, and the author of our latest book, along with pastors Jürgen von Hagen and Joseph Bailey, The Grace of Shame, Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. The Grace of Shame, Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. We should say, let's see, this episode... He's also the star of The World We Made. A wonderful podcast featuring some other stars that I like quite a bit as well. We finished season one up, what, like a month ago, and so if you haven't listened to that, you should go binge it right now. Eminently bingeable. Take about an hour, two hours, short little episodes, teach you a lot about engaging with homosexuality in our uh, not-so-Christian culture today. Yeah. I do say so myself, and I do. Now, this episode, I believe, is dropping the fair month of September, which means for a few days more, our uh, people, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, you can go to warhornmedia.com. You can download said book for free. You won't even have to sign up for a mailing list or anything like that. That's right. No strings attached. There's an interactive PDF there available for free for if this releases on time should be for the next week yep yep uh go there now because the offer doesn't stand you might have to uh, throw a few bucks our way after september 4th october 4th 4th, that's right how would you sum up the grace of shame and what that book is jake it's a list 
it's a ways. it's a list. It's a list of ways the modern Reformed Evangelical Church has caved, w- ways that we've caved and have failed to be faithful witnesses to the sin of homosexuality and therefore to love homosexuals. And so there's a lot of value throughout the whole book, but the two things that strike me the most are the focus on drawing out the sin of, of effeminacy, what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he condemns the Malachi in 1 Corinthians and really learning to use the litmus test of substituting any number of sins in for homosexuality or gay uh, whenever you encounter it. So, for example, when you see people talking about... I'm a gay Christian. This is the gay Christian movement. Replace gay with pedophile, with murderous, with adulterous, with polyamorous, polygamous. It's just a very clarifying way of thinking that that sticks with you, because there's a lot of people using a lot of sophisticated language around the sin of homosexuality and and so it's a really nice, easy way to cut through and see what's really going on when people are using terms like gay Christian or whatever. But there are a lot of other things that are addressed in the book. Reparative therapy is addressed or conversion therapy. Gay celibacy or the spiritual friendship movement is addressed. All, all that kind of that kind of thing. It's a really helpful book. So we're going to talk about that book. A funny thing happened on the way to the interview or in in the course of the interview, which you'll hear. We start to talk about the book and I think you'll get a good idea of the book. However, it turned into a little bit of a a therapy session for one uh, Nathan Alberson, which uh, let's face it, really the apparatus that we call Warhorn Media is really just one big therapy session for, for Nathan. <laughs> this is explaining a lot of things. What's that? <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> no, Tim's a pastor, and I was in need of a little pastoring the day that we did that. Um, so you'll get to hear that, and I think it's good, and I th- I'm just going to assume a lot of people need pastored in the same way that I did that day. As you try and build God's kingdom, as you fight these culture wars, there's a lot of different things that are going through your head. There are a lot of different things that were going through my head. And um, and I think I think it's important for listeners to know, though, that uh, listeners, I think, maybe assume that I have skin in the game because I'm a pastor. But what they need to know is that Nathan has skin in the game. And so all of the work that he does for Warhorn War, War Media has a, has a cost to it and has a, has a professional cost to it, as he just discovered last night. <laughs> and, uh, and to know that, that, that Nathan's been on the edge of being fired from his job for his work here is, is something I think is, should be helpful and important for our, our listeners to know that the, str- <laughs> the struggle is real. I think that's the point. <laughs> and it hits home. And I, and I know that a lot of our listeners will appreciate that because they have, they have jobs where how they witness, how they talk about homosexuality. And I, I've received and I, I know that you have, I know that Joseph has, I know that Tim has. I've received a number of questions just about the world we made and uh, from people wanting to apply some of the things we're talking about and saying, man, if I start to really try to be faithful the way you guys are calling me to, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. And so we know that there's skin in the game for you guys. And uh, I just want you to know, as Nathan's asking this question of Tim, there's skin in the game for him too. That's true. Why should somebody buy this book and what should be the one thing they take away from it? How would you sum this this book up? You wrote it for a reason. Yeah. yeah. You wrote it because you believed something needed to be said. I was reading a lot of what was being said by reformed celebrities and the ministries they were promoting, and it, it was off-key. And it was off-key on an instrument that I know extremely well, which is sex and culture. I've lived my life in places and with people who were various levels of bisexual, transsexual, feminist, Madison, Boulder, all these cities, now Bloomington. And I could hear that the dissonance between what scripture actually says and what celebrities were claiming it said. And it was very serious to me because having repentant lesbians and gays in this church, and so of course, no, I don't call them gays, but I want people to understand, I know the lingo. Having them in this church and having worked with them, it was so clear to me the threat to their souls and the souls of other people coming to Christ who have been in these sins. I remember talking to a guy in our church who's married with kids, and he repented of homosexuality when he, when he came here. You know, he and I were commiserating over the destructiveness of the positions being taken. It was so obvious to us the people taking these positions and promoting ministries that are off-key and that 
these people didn't understand ministering to homosexuals. And so I would start by saying that as I talked to my wife, I just, it was such a burden to me, but I didn't want to write a book that would be critical of people that I respect for their witness publicly. But my wife said, you have to write this book. That's why it's dedicated to her and to our other wives, not my other wives, but the other two authors' wives, as I am actually monogamous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I would start by saying, on a guttural level, I ain't going to allow them to betray people tempted by homosexuality. Not going to do it. And that's me as a shepherd. I won't do it. People who have repented are not out there talking about their permanent desire for the same sex. That is something they repent of and they hide. It's not helpful to their wives and children for them to be out there talking about the beauty of another man's body and how they want to unite with him, as, for instance, one of the guys on livingout.org does. Okay? It's not helpful. And I don't, I don't have any illusions that, that all the people repenting of homosexuality or transsexuality or other sins are going to like the book and say, yes, he's striking a blow for us. But there are tons of people caught in this sin who have repented of it and who are repenting of it, who are thankful for it. Now, people might say, oh, yeah, I bet. Listen, trust me. The reason I wrote this book is because these people ha- are in contact with me. <laughs> I think of this one man who, who's, you know, he's read all the stuff on homosexuality. He himself has repented of a, a terrible drug addiction and of deep homosexual sin. And he says this is the book he's going to give to homosexuals. Why? Well, because this is the book that reinforces his faith and hope that God will give him victory over his sin. He's not abandoned to a lifelong backwater of having a desire to unite with every pretty boy that walks by. He sees that as horrible. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't, he wants to be done with it. Now, will he be completely done with it before he dies? I suspect not, and I've told him that. But we must never endorse his homosexual identity, his effeminacy, his lust, his desire to unite with pretty men, as if that is Christian ministry to him, to tell him he has a sexual orientation he never chose, you know, that he, that he, that he couldn't help and that, you know, kind of God gave it to him without saying it, because of course you would never say such a thing, you just imply it. You know, there's a guy in this book that I talk about, <laughs> and it is the most painful thing I describe in the book, I think. And wouldn't you know it, Almost the day the book is released, all of a sudden I hear from this man from New York City, and he's completely in bondage. And he writes to us, to another man in the church who's repented of homosexuality, and to to one of the other pastors, and to me. And he just is oozing affection and love for us and asking us to pray that God will give him repentance. Uh, that's the first thing. The book, because of because of people caught in sexual sin, incest. We work constantly with people who have given themselves to destroying little children. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's just the truth. They're child corruptors, and we love them, and, and sometimes they go to prison, but they love us. We work with mothers who have covered up the destruction of their children by their husbands sexually. And we confront the mothers with their complicity in the sin of their husbands. And then they come to this church and they join it and they love us. Okay. So people ought not to have any snob conceit that this book is written because of diffidence, let alone hostility to people in sexual sin. It's written from love. But then I want to make one other point about the book. Let's say that you live on an island in the South Pacific, which is a good place to get lost, you know? And so you're not angst-ridden about your homosexual desires. You're not ACDC. You're not effeminate. Or let's say that you have a small village and homosexuality has never been heard of. So why would you read the book? Well, there's another thing going on with this book, and that is it's to watch three pastors approach a terribly conflictual error of life today, in the church and outside of the church, and demonstrate a biblical, pastoral, loving, and truthful approach to that issue, okay? And so even if you don't have any 
tendency to effeminacy, to homosexuality, transsexuality, bisexuality, any of these things. The book has merit in watching us do our work in such a way that whatever the sins are that you do deal with with your culture, all of a sudden you're acclimated to the line between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, to the kinds of pressures you'll be put under to compromise, to the nature of the compromises you'll be tempted to do, and how to repent of them and come back. If nothing else, that's a good reason to read the book. And then there's one other reason. The third reason to read the book is there are two big ideas in this book. One is that effeminacy is sin. That for a man to live in a womanly way out loud, in the way he doesn't stand against temptations, in the way he gives himself to narcissism, in the way that he looks in mirrors and builds his body muscles and his vein, in the way that he doesn't have courage to fight where God calls him to fight, that this effeminacy is sin. And it's a sin that's so serious that God says we will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right? That's a big idea that nobody talks about today. It absolutely must be said. Because if I were to say what is the reigning sin of millennials, I would say baby boomers. Me. All right? What is the reigning sin of men alive in the world today? I would say it is effeminacy. It is not being able to say no to our lusts, our desires, our sins, our egos. And so that's one of the big ideas. And there are a couple chapters on that, and I think they're very helpful, even outside of the question of homosexuality. And in the ancient world, they talked about effeminacy all the time. Both the Greeks and the Romans hated it. It was maybe ground zero of the most despised failure of a man that could be. And then the other big idea is shame is actually helpful. It's actually a grace from God. Somewhere Muggeridge, I think it is, talks about how Christians have always been the best humorous. And he says that, uh, it may not be Muggeridge, it may be, uh, it may be Lewis. It's Chesterton, Muggeridge, or Lewis, one of those three. And he says, all the best humorists are always Christians. And he says, the reason is that Christians are willing to see and acknowledge the chasm between what God made us to be and what we are, okay? And then he says that for this reason in heaven, there will be neither clothing nor jokes, because both clothing and jokes are the way that we mediate that tension. And in heaven, there will not no longer be any need for it. I think that that's a very good analogy for shame, You know, in heaven, there's not going to be any need for shame because we will be at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We'll be dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will be our all in all. But in this world, we have a need for shame, and it's God's gift to us. I think humor is God's gift to us. In many places in Scripture, the humor is excruciatingly funny. You know, I think of the man born blind saying to the, you know, to the religious leaders, the presbyters, while they're frothing at the mouth. You want to guess what I'm going to say? Go ahead, Jake. Do you want to worship him yeah, too? Yeah. Do you want to be his disciple also? <laughs> you know, or the apostle Paul saying, "I'm sorry, I didn't know that you were, you know, the high priest." You know, and all these other things. You know, or the apostle Paul saying in Philemon, "You know, I'm not even going to mention the fact that you owe me your very life." You know. <laughs> so um, the three things are: number one, love for people caught and repenting of homosexual, bisexual, transsexual, metrosexual, uh, effeminacy sin. Number two, watching pastors approach a very conflicted area and try to handle it biblically and lovingly and firmly. And number three, the two large ideas, one, effeminacy is actually a terrible sin, and we have to repent of it. And number two, that uh, shame is actually a gift from God, and that we should begin to notice it and to use it appropriately and to repent when we have it appropriately. So that's my thinking about why the book is helpful. So the conceit of this particular podcast is places where normal Bible-believing Christians feel out of step with not just the culture, but with other Christians, with the the Reformed world or, or the evangelical world at large. Where do you feel out of step when it comes to sexuality, and particularly homosexuality? Where do you feel insane or out of step as a pastor in your ministry? Probably about 15 years ago, I was being interviewed by the Minneapolis Star the religion editor there on matters of sexuality. It was when I was executive director of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I'm trying to remember what what the substance of the interview was. You know, it was the typical questions about men, women, 
you know, how God created Adam first, then Eve, it was a woman. I don't think it, I don't think she ever wrote an article on it <laughs> because I asked her to please send me a copy of whatever she did because I just think that's a helpful way of, of keeping journalists uh-huh. honest and not trashing you, you yeah. know. Anyhow, during that interview, I think in the first half, it was pretty good in that it was successful in moving her off a pre conceived notion that I was a Neanderthal. I think she saw, I mean, I talked about my brothers going to McAllister, and I think that was a shock to her, that I went to UW-Madison, that was a shock to her. You know, she thought she was dealing with uh, (laughs) uh, idiots, you know, and and I am an idiot, but anyhow. (laughs) Um, Your brothers weren't. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Some of my best friends are my brothers who went to McAllister. And I, we also had talked about the Boundary Waters. Anybody in Minneapolis, Minnesota, you know, they're going to love you if you've had a lot of trips up into the Boundary Waters. Anyhow, she stopped. And you could tell that this was a momentous uh, question because mm. of the way she stopped and sort of took a deep breath. And she said to me, she said, are you worried that people uh, will view you as a chauvinist? And I knew it was going to be an important question. I had no idea what it was going to be. But when she asked it, I just laughed. And I said, worried. I said, people never stop accusing Orthodox Christians of being chauvinists. I said, that's the main tool. And I said, I know people call me a chauvinist all the time. You know, you're a male chauvinist pig. You know, you're insecure. You're this, that, and the other thing. (laughs) I don't think anybody can read Scripture honestly, honestly and not feel very alone today. I don't think you feel any less alone in the church than you do outside of it. In fact, many times I feel much more alone in the church than outside because I can sure understand the world and why it just absolutely despises and mocks and scorns the Bible's teaching. I think the thing that I feel most acutely is the scorn of men and women who claim to hold to Scripture and look at me as an outlier. And I always am saying to them what I ended up saying to that reporter, actually. I said to her, you know, I take comfort that although I'm a microscopic minority today in my commitments on sexuality, that across human history, not just the Christian church, but across human history, I'm absolutely mainstream. This is what 99.99% of people everywhere have always believed about sexuality, that there is an order to the sexes. And, you know, anthropologists have tried to find, you know, the, the, you know, the true Amazonian, uh, you know, matriarchy, and it just doesn't exist. You know, we tried to establish it by electing Hillary this time, and it failed. And I know Angela Merkel has had a long run in Germany. And I know Margaret Thatcher, you know, was the the prime minister at number 10 Downing. But the interesting thing is, New York Times used to mock her as, quote, the Iron Lady, unquote. Mm -hmm. And so even though it was a woman in the position, it was so funny that they accused her of being too hard. Yeah. Um, So you do feel lonely at times, but that's why I always tell people, men especially who are in the pastorate and the eldership and women who are Titus II women and lead other women in the church and teach them. I say, if you don't read dead people, you're going to go bust. You will not be able to keep up the work of warning and admonishing and encouraging today. You just won't won't be able to do it because the stuff being written today, it's so awful. And I'm speaking about the Christian stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, people have decided that since there's a battle on, the best way to win it is to raise a flag of truce and then claim victory. You know, they have nothing to say about the creation order, nothing to say about the application of God's creation order in the garden, a state of perfection prior to the fall, nothing to say about how to live as men and women in our jobs, in the military, in in prisons. You know, I remember a couple years ago, there was a guy in our church that was in the local county jail for a sin that we made him confess to the civil magistrate. I went in to visit him, and as I was walking out, the bailiff, or I don't know what you call him, the, the jailer, that was escorting me from the conference room where I was visiting him out, was... A a, a sweet young woman, and I hope people won't think I'm being patronizing by saying sweet. I I sometimes call men that. And as we walked out in this horrible, overcrowded local county jail, we went past this door that had a large light or window in in the door. And there was a, a man, stark naked, 
facing the door, standing mostly across his cell, wild-eyed. And I just saw her sort of matter-of-factly look in that door, and it, it was clear she was inured to it. And I thought, what a horrible day we live in where women are guarding men and are having to be subject to that kind of thing. That's how callous our world is today about sexuality. And, and you know, I can't even imagine how Christians who deny that manhood and woman has any significant meaning other than body parts outside of the church and the home. So yeah, I feel real lonely in the church because I don't think we have faith that God's truth is beautiful. I don't think we have faith for God's truth about manhood and womanhood for anybody but ourselves. I don't think we have faith that it's one of the sweetest evangelistic doctrines that there is in the world today. I mean, father hunger is everywhere, and we can't proclaim the fatherhood of God over all creation You know, we have to say that this is just a private Christian truth for the home and the church, that God's fatherhood doesn't have application anywhere except when we're in our session meetings and in the pulpit and at home when we need tie-breaking authority, as Tim Keller puts it. So I don't know. Is that enough angst for you? (laughs) (laughs) Got the honest. Now we can tell the truth. Uh, (laughs) uh, But on the other hand, you know, the truth is... This church is filled with young adults who love God's truth and who live it, and men and women who aren't ashamed of the gospel. They're not ashamed of Jesus' words. They're not ashamed of the fatherhood of God and the sonship of Jesus Christ and the gospel of John's proclamation of Christ's glory in doing the will of his Father. And my own kids, you know, Mary Lee's and my children and the people they've married. It's just a, it's an unbelievable thing to me how many children. And I, again, please, a man at 63 ought to be able to talk about children who are adults. And the Apostle Paul did. I'm no Apostle Paul. But, <laughs> you know, when I look at all of the children that God has given the elders and pastors of this church and, and to the point that we're reproducing with you, Jake, with you, Nathan, you're now your own leaders, your own men. I mean, I sometimes I crawl under the couch and I lick my paws. But <laughs> generally, life is really sweet because here in this university community, it's so decadent. It's such a sweet community. Its impact in the community of this church is so sweet. We see other churches planted in Indy over in Cincy, friends in other places, South Carolina, Seattle, north of Seattle on the border. But yeah... It is difficult today. I will I will absolutely agree to that. Yep. So you write a book like this, The Grace of Shame, Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals, and you know, people are gonna think it's divisive or wonder why we had to go on the attack against this or that thing within the conservative church, mm-hmm. you know, our, our friends. Mm-hmm. The thing I wanna say is I really don't know how to explain it without being personal and without being self aggrandizing because you really do have to have the aroma of being something sweet, which is something that's really hard for me to explain. Like when I go somewhere else, it's like, just just come and hang out. And mm-hmm. it's not the, mm-hmm. our, I, you know, again, I don't want to be self-aggrandizing. I don't want to say our church is anything but uh, failing in the right direction. But um, the aroma is sweet. Yeah, remember the other half to that, which is to those who are perishing, we're the smell of death. Mm-hmm. We're a morbid smell. And, you know, if you ever watch whodunits, the way my wife and I do regularly. There's always that scene at the murder. The new person goes out and pukes. Mm -hmm. And the person who's the hero goes in and takes the smell and doesn't puke, Mm -hmm. okay? We can't smell sweet unless we smell like death, okay? And so if our goal is to smell sweet, and everybody says we smell sweet, we don't smell sweet. What we've succeeded in doing is not smelling like death. And nobody who doesn't smell like death to those who are perishing is ever sweet. They can have a reputation of being sweet. They can be they can be lauded all over the world for smelling sweet, but they're not a sweet smell. Because Jesus says through the apostle, he says, to one and to the other, to one were the smell of death, to the others, to those being saved were, were the smell of sweet. So and as far as self-aggrandizing is concerned, <laughs> you know. I always tell people that my real problem with Christians in the church who have the gift of mercy is that they're so self-aggrandizing. You know, haven't you noticed how how they 
go around the church being merciful. It's just it's infuriating. <laughs> I mean, the pride of them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Have you watched people with the gift of mercy? It's so disgusting. Right. <laughs> you know, and then the people with the gift of helps. I mean, they're self, so self-aggrandizing, you know? <laughs> and then people with the gift of administration. Have you ever noticed how they seem to have rules about chairs and tables and schedules and things like it's so It's all about their kingdom. Right. Now, of course, I'm being facetious, mm-hmm. but I do have a point. And my point is the gift of discernment has to, again, be loved by the church. If we're not going to accuse the gift of mercy and the gift of helps and the gift of administration of being self-aggrandizing and dissing them, why on earth would we diss the gift of discernment? We all want every sermon every Sunday to be from one of Paul's epistles, and every single one of them is an exercise in discernment. Why do we accept it from the Apostle Paul? And yet when people exercise that gift today, we say it's because they're insecure and jealous and envious and they love conflict and all this other stuff. Look, the truth is, the only way that the truth is protected is to guard it. Mm-hmm. And if we give ourselves to guarding the good deposit, it is the lifeblood of that work is negative because what you have to do is oppose those who would destroy it. And the, the, the attack on truth is relentless. And if you look at the New Testament, it's always in the church. And we should have our most intense commitment to guarding the good deposit inside the church. And that's the problem with the church today. The church wants to guard the good deposit with the Supreme Court and, you know, with the state legislature and, you know, with uh, uh, Amazon's Washington Post and all this other stuff. But then we all want to come in the church and say, well, there's no danger here. And, And why are you always dividing us? Well, look, the only way unity in a marriage, unity in a home, and unity in a church, and unity in society, and unity internationally is ever protected is by saying, if you cross that border, I'm going to fight you. You know, there's a great section in Chesterton uh, where he talks about uh, Germany coming over and wanting to go through England to get to Belgium, you know, metaphorically, you know, literally. And, you know, the book ends with Chesterton saying, I will not allow you, perfect man, German, to set one foot in my house. And that is the basis of peace. If you know, if Neville Chamberlain had said that to Hitler, we have no idea how the history of the 20th century might have been different. Or if there hadn't been such compromise with Stalin, we have no idea if we maybe would have escaped having the Iron Curtain and all the suffering that that involved. You know, Stalin's, by Solzhenitsyn's estimate, 60 million to 100 million deaths. And so I think what we have to realize is that there actually is depravity. And the depravity is not simply of a sort of fleshly sort. I think we're all going to cop to fleshly depravity. But the depravity is doctrinal. The the depravity is an attack upon not just truths, but upon the concept of truth, the gift of truth itself. And it starts in the church. And, you know, you mentioned the book, and yeah, That book was delayed a year because I just looked at the idea of being critical of, for instance, Al Mohler in coming out against reparative therapy and in favor of sexual orientation. And he's wrong on those things. I mean, you know, you have to read the book to know why we say that and how we say it, but he's wrong on those things. But look, who better to be critical of than Al Mohler? Honestly, why would I bother being critical about that dude that smiles down in Houston? Uh, Joel Osteen. What's his name? Joel Osteen. Well, I know that, but I don't want to remember it, so that's why I say the dude. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's important to be critical of your wife, her critical of you. That's where sanctification starts. Everybody wants to talk about sanctification of marriage. Well, how does it happen? It happens by your wife not thinking you're really that special and criticizing <laughs> you. <laughs> you know? That's how it works in my home. <laughs> yeah. And isn't that why we love the church, that people come up to us? I had an elder come in. He spent two and a half hours last night telling me three things that he's, hmm, what would I say? Displeased? Dissatisfied? With well, I mean, that's kind of a euphemism. <laughs> you know, he was deciding whether to come back on the elders board, all right? Does that give you the weight of the meeting? Mm. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know? And one of them, I think he was completely out to lunch on because I didn't do it. I didn't say it. I, I can't even conceive of, you know, what he thought happened. It was something somebody else said. And I was like, it's not me. <laughs> the second one, he got a little bit of blood on that one. The third one, he got complete blood. I just said, yeah, you're right on that one. As a matter of fact, two other people have talked to me about that this week. And, and would you please pray for me in continuing to exhort me? So if that's how we live, and that's how we live, all three of us, honestly, why are we so thin-skinned when it comes to the improvement of the church and of its leaders? Why? So if somebody is, uh, maybe this is a stupid question, I don't know. If It always is a stupid question. <laughs> if it's worthwhile, it's a stupid question. Well, if, uh, <laughs> say, Al Mohler or, or one of the men, that's the gentleman that's actually criticized in this book, how should they take that, like, if, if they were to read the book? It's really simple. And I know everybody's going to think I'm wacko for saying this. Al Mohler should say, and he said this, you know, he went in front of the national conference where he, he, he tells us he was the keynote speaker and it was a conference for the centuries. And he said, after 30 some years of doing this work of being a faithful witness, I have to admit sometimes I've gotten things wrong. And one of the things I've gotten wrong is that I've said there is no such thing as sexual orientation. And now I have to say there is because, all right, all he has to do is do that again. He has to say, you know, I apologize for the previous apology, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. It would sound like a Monty Python skit except to Christians. <laughs> and every Christian would understand that because every Christian regularly has to apologize for apologies. So now, when I say that, everybody's going to go, are you serious? You think it's going to help to have any major national leader who has such a following to admit he got something wrong? And I say, absolutely, yep. that will have more of an impact than anything Al Moore has ever done, because it will show people that God gets the glory and not us. Mm -hmm. It'll show people that there is no such thing as a teacher who doesn't fail. I love quoting to people what James says, not many of you should desire to be teachers, for you may be certain that we who teach shall be judged more strictly. All of us often go wrong. This is the Apostle James. So I think it would be helpful for us as leaders with our churches, with the media, to much more often say, I got that wrong, which Al Mohler did. And he needs to do it about sexual orientation reparative therapy. But listen, my dad taught me. And I once was at a meeting out in, at Wycliffe with uh, Vern Poitras and Joel Belts. And I don't remember whether John was there, John Piper. Wayne Grudem was there, and we were meeting with them to try to get them to not move in the direction of gender-neutered translations of Scripture. Jim Dobson's right-hand guy was there. This was out in Huntington Beach. And interestingly, it was in the building that when I came back to the ward, I was working as a construction worker on building it and as the night watchman of. So it was the first time I'd seen that building completed. I, be I came back to the ward well, I was a night watchman on that site, so it was very sweet. Anyhow, we got into this meeting. I don't know how many of the listeners have been in meetings like this, but uh, it was one of these meetings where you have opposite sides firmly entrenched. Everybody there is a heavy hitter. As it happens, <laughs> and this was kind of funny, my father-in-law, Ken Taylor, just given uh, huge amounts of money to the Seed Project for Bible translations around the world. And so the people we were coming to say no to were people who were predisposed to want very much to be thankful to me and like me, okay? And then the other thing was Dad Bailey, uh, my father, who was deceased at that time, um, had been used a lot by Wycliffe to, to speak at conferences in other countries and stuff. So they loved my father and my father-in-law. So we started the meeting by going around the table. It started with the president of Wycliffe proper. And again and again, people from Wycliffe and SIL looked at me and said to me, we just love your father-in-law. We just love your father. I mean, they didn't say love, but I mean, it really was a love fest about my dad and my father-in-law, you know? I was near the end of the circle. So there were these people saying this, and they were the people that we were there to sort of, you know, say no to, right? And I felt the pressure because in a meeting like that, if you're going to engage in conflict, which is what we were there for, and you have everybody talking about their love for your father and father-in-law. Well, I absolutely adored my father. 
and he was dead. And so people talk about my dad positively, and he's dead. It's just like, lets all my glands, hormones, just, I mean, I'm just completely putty in their hands. Then my father-in-law, I love him just as much, just as much, adore him, even though we had to fight over Bible translation. So finally, it gets to me, right? And I don't know, what am I going to say? And so what I said was, I want all of you to know how how much joy it gives me to hear you speaking about my dad my father-in-law this way. It's so kind. But I want to say something to you. If my father taught me nothing else, he taught me that truth comes before relationships. And so I'm sorry, but I want you to know that I'm here today to guard the truth. And thank you for what you've said about my father and father-in-law today. But truth is preeminent. And then come relationships. And uh, I don't know what they thought while I said that. That's all I said. But I think we have to remember that the Bible says, let judgment begin and let it begin in the house of God. And to the degree that we're willing to love each other and argue and take principled positions against each other in the midst of love, I think that's where the world sees that we are one. They don't see we're one because we're a bunch of automatons like all the people marching in Apple's 1984 commercial, you know, Mm. bull, 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 bull. Mm. You know, they see we're one when they see a sweet unity in the midst of, now you want me to say diversity, but what I'm going to say is in the midst of what diversity really is, which is argument and discipline and admonition and correction and rebuke. And it happens in our church with all of us. Why shouldn't it happen in the celebrity world? So how do you do that work? Um, I mean, how do you parse it? How do you, if you're going to engage in that kind of argument, how do you stay humble? How do you stay loving? How do you, how do you make that work? What do, I mean, I think a lot of people just don't even know how to start with that kind of thing. Well, first of all, you said stay humble. And that assumes that there's any humility in me. And I'm not sure there is. But... You said stay humble, and you know me very well, so there must be some (laughs) minimal, you know, some tiny microscopic. And here's what I'd say about humility, because I think humility is completely foreign terra incognito to young men today. I think they talk about it. They don't have any idea what they're talking about, okay? Mm-hmm. Would I include present company? Hey, <laughs> I was yeah. about to ask. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. But listen, what is humility? Joe Sobern, before he died, and he's been my favorite author, living author while he lived, Orthodox Roman Catholic. Uh, Joe Sobern said that today the humble man fights. And this is a deep truth for your generation. It's thought that the humble man refuses to fight because he's humble. But the fact is, any man today who fights for truth and purity, starting with himself, moving to his family, his church, his marriage, let alone out in the world, the Christian world, the secular world, any man will immediately be accused of being proud. That's the way we silence good shepherds today, is we say they're jealous, they're envious, they love conflict, they're proud. And any idiot knows that's what you're going to be accused of if you defend God's truth. So think about it. Why would you want to defend God's truth today knowing full well everyone's going to accuse you of being jealous and envious and thin-skinned and small and, 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 and chauvinist and, and proud? So then you have to retire to the issue, well, okay, you know that people are going to dislike you for it, but you have such a need to be right. It's like, dude, it's only men that are wrong all the time in their thoughts that find themselves constantly revolting against every word they read in scripture who begin to fight because they realize how perverse they are. And then they preach to themselves and then they speak to themselves when they speak on their blogs, on their Facebook pages. And For people to despise the gift of discernment and say it's just their pride or it's their need to be right or it's their tribalism, that's Tim Keller's favorite term for it. It's just so unmanly. Now, there I go again. (laughs) But look, that's what all through the church history, everybody who we honor calls it. 
They always say it's effeminate to not care about the truth and to try to impress people with your vocabulary, which is what most discussions today, there's nothing at stake with all the Christians' discussions, but it's a way of men copying a posture with each other in such a way that they can see if they can climb into the cool kids club. I mean, I, you know, I, I was in junior high school. I know what's going on in all these reform groups, you know? And, 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 but one other story. So the humble man fights, but one other story. Right before before he died, Christianity Today was, or Wheaton College's record or some publication, Wheaton was asking, and my father-in-law was universally respected. He was loved because he he supported so many ministries financially. He lived so humbly. He was he was he was a godly man. Yeah, we disagreed over gender neutered Bibles. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but that was in harmony with his whole view of the Bible, which I didn't agree with, and we talked about it, but we loved each other. But anyhow, right before he died, he was being interviewed by the record, or I think it was the record, the Wheaton record, and they asked him, you know, at the end of his life, uh, what trait did he have that he, that he was most proud of? Okay? Like you said, you know, how do you stay humble? And he said, well, he said, some people tell me I'm humble, and that makes me proud. <laughs> And that is about the level of the discussion of humility and pride. We have to think more sophisticated about the nature of humility. I've got Chesterton right here. Okay, can you read it? I was thinking of this quote, and I was thinking, this is a Chesterton quote. (laughs) And then I looked down, and here's a copy of Orthodoxy just sitting right there. sitting there. It's just (laughs) a volunteer book coming up out of the desk you're at. Maybe the quote's in there. It's like, (laughs) open and flip right to it. (laughs) Are you going to read it? And I'm going to read it. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert (laughs) himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. Huxley preached a humility content to learn from nature, but the new skeptic is so humble that he doubts if he can even learn. Thus, we should be wrong if we had said hastily that there is no humility typical of our time. The truth is that there is a real humility typical of our time, but it so happens that it is practically a more poisonous humility than the wildest prostrations of the ascetic. The old humility was a spur that prevented a man from stopping, not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. For the old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. Mm -hmm. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which will make him stop working altogether. At any street corner, we may meet a man who utters the frantic and blasphemous statement that he may be wrong. Every day, one comes across somebody who says that, of course, his view may or may not be the right one. Of course, his view must be the right one, or it is not his view. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. We're in danger of seeing. <laughs> we are in danger of seeing philosophers who doubt the law of gravity as being a mere fancy of their own. Scoffers of old time were too proud to be convinced, but these are too humble to be con- are too humble to be convinced. The meek do inherit the earth, but the modern skeptics are too meek even to claim their inheritance. It is exactly this intellectual helplessness which is our problem. <laughs> And remember, uh, listeners who don't know this, that Chesterton despises Calvinists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he absolutely despises us. And there's nobody more helpful in this sort of thing and nobody more helpful on sexuality than G.K. Chesterton. There's just nobody. This is over a, a century ago. Yeah. And uh, he has our number. We're, we're pretty easy to know as, as soon as we're willing to step out of the present books. Mm-hmm. and read dead men and women dorothy sayers i have her in, in the bibliography in the book well my question for chesterton as jake read that and my question for you i guess is um he says the what did he say the organ of human or no humility is moved from the organ of self to the organ of what was that oh, no i'm not going to be able to open right to it again <laughs> <laughs> modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. I don't know how to sort out ambition and conviction. Maybe it's just because I'm a millennial. I don't know. But I, when I go hmm. to promote this book, do the work mm-hmm. I do for Warhorn, do the podcast, have fights with people about mm-hmm. the various things that have come up over the last year, I have no idea what's ambition and what's truth. I don't know how to sort out which one is which. And that's most of my angst all the time in doing this kind mm-hmm. of work is which one is it? 
And I feel like sometimes I can just flip a coin. Sometimes I pray and God just, you know, sometimes I just go and do the work and say, ah, you know, I'm not going to be self-conscious about it. And then sometimes I'm utterly despondent about it and want to mm-hmm. crawl under the couch and lick my paws, mm-hmm. like you said, because I, 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 I feel like it's all mixed together. In the book of Psalms, there's, it's a barb that has dogged me all through the ministry. And it is the statement that David makes that he does not, depending on the translation, he doesn't trouble himself with great things. He doesn't involve himself with great things. He's not... Um, but things too high for him. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't. And I know that I don't think there's any sin that is so endemic to pastors than the sin of pride. You know, I've known... A number of surgeons, well, I shouldn't say a number, I've known the two principal pediatric surgeons in the world during their lifetime, John Raffensperger and Chick Coops, Everett Coop. And I remember going on rounds with Raffensperger one time at Children's in Chicago, it has a different name now, but, and watching him deal with uh, the other healthcare workers there, principally nurses. And it was extremely uncomfortable because... Dr. Raffensperger, when he saw the care of one of the children he'd operated on in the preemie nursery, and it wasn't up to snuff, there was no being nice. You know, Dr. Raffensperger was brutally direct in saying, this is a failure and you will correct it now. And even knowing that it was the lives of little babies at stake, I found it scandalous, okay? And this is typically true of surgeons, especially surgeons who work with little children. They seem not to have a high tolerance level for error with their patients, (laughs) right? Does this make sense to you? And I really think, Nathan, that we have to understand that the Apostle Paul wasn't an egotist. And yet the things he says, if any man said them today, people's hair would stand on it. And they say he's the most arrogant SOB there's ever been on the face of the earth. Follow me as I follow Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, he's constantly yeah. telling people to copy him. Mm-hmm. Why? And he he's imitators always, of me, he says like three times in Philippians, I think. Yeah, and he's always shoving his office of apostleship in everybody's face. And maybe the most awful thing is he even lists the ways he suffered. It's unbelievable how humble that man is. But you see what I just did there. I did a flip. Mm -hmm. All those things I say are his humility. The only way you can do them is you have an absolute confidence that God's truth is precious and that there there is no value too high to place on fighting for the defense, for the salvation of the defense of, of a human soul who is, that is immortal. And so I remember when I first went into the Presbyterian Church reading one of the preliminary principles where it says, um, truth is in order to goodness. Now, these preliminary principles come from the, you know, the 1700s uh, Presbyterians in the U.S. Truth is in order to goodness, and there's no doctrine more pernicious than that which holds that it is of no consequence what a man believes. Our Savior's rule is by their fruit ye shall know them. And then it talks about the importance of embracing truth. And, you know, people look at truth as not mattering today because to weak men who are soft, the only thing that matters is relationship. That's the essence of, of effeminacy in a man is that he gives up truth for the sake of relationship. In a good marriage, the wife is the principal defender of relationship and the man is the principal defender of truth. Now, everybody's going to have a hissy fit that I say that. And then they'll go home and play it out and not see any reason to go back and apologize to me for making fun of me for saying it. But I've spent my life in pastoral counseling, and I know that normally the battle is that the husband wants to bring God's truth to a fine point with his children, and his wife feels that he may destroy the children in the process and won't let him. Okay? This is just normal, right? I remember watching you grow up and wishing that sometimes there would be some man who would actually get your mother to chill out about the level of intensity of her protectiveness of you and your brothers. Okay, And I would actually talk to my wife, who's your mother's one of her best friends, and say to her, would you please get Beth to chill out a little bit with those boys? Let them make mistakes, you know, let them actually hit their head against the concrete, let them fail, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, let them blow up some firecrackers. It's not the end of the world if they lose three fingers. You know? <laughs> oh. So I think that you have to, I think one of the problems with millennials is they're way too self-conscious. Ecstasy literally means ex stand out to stand stasis to stand outside of ourselves and this is something that that millennials find it very difficult to do and we have to learn to stand outside of ourselves so everything is not corrupted by a cloying self-awareness that that will always discourage us because of our sin mm-hmm. and so yeah you have those sins so what are you going to do I tell the elders all the time, there's no admonition, correction, rebuke, let alone formal church discipline that's ever done without the elders and the pastors adding to the pool of sin in the room as they do the work of rebuke and admonition. Every pastor that gets into the pulpit and preaches, he he sees, I mean, you're so aware of your sin as you preach. You go to the Lord's table to, to administer the body and blood of our Lord. You're so aware of your sin. What are we all going to do? Sit around and, and have a pity party about how we can't lead and we can't guard and we can't defend and we can't pass on the truth to the next generation because we're such sinners? So look, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you're, you're, you're a self-aggrandizing ag- pig. I'm worse. And, you know, there's work to do. <laughs> That's my response. You love me, I love you, I know what you are, and you sure know what I am. (laughs) And we work, you know? I think that that's what men do. We work. I'm always afraid that if I just unleash myself on that, that suddenly I'll have the hammer of the truth and I'll just be an ass to everybody. You know what I mean? Like, Well, I think it's more difficult for you than it is for Jake and me. And that's because you're single. And so you, you don't have... All of the humiliations of fatherhood and husbandry rattling you day by day. I mean, honestly, there's something very humbling about you being on the toilet and your wife coming in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And it's not just humbling, you know, Tom Howard. uh, Tom Howard is an English prophet at Gordon College, and he wrote a book called Splendor in the Ordinary, where he argued that nobody should ever use a bathroom with the door open. And I always viewed that as a deep theological truth, that how we process the indignities of life and with whom we process them is a very sophisticated question. And so people who are single aren't aware of the degree to which my dignity is constantly poked and puffed and slapped and you know, by marriage, by my children, by my in-laws, you know, my son-in-law comes to me and says, hey, what are you doing giving permission for somebody to use our truck without talking to me first? You know, and I'm going, uh, yep, sorry. (laughs) Well, this kind of stuff is the bread and butter of life in marriage and family. And so somebody that's single does not get slapped around as much. You may feel that you get slapped around even more by me pointing out that you're single. (laughs) Right. Right. But I get slapped around much more than you do. Well, I don't know if you could even believe that, but I it's true. It's just true. But I grew up watching my dad get slapped around, you know, by people who wrote him letters when he wrote his columns, people that didn't like his books, people at church that couldn't stand the fact that he was at the non-dispensational Sunday school publisher, David C. Cook, and everybody that was important worked at Scripture Press, which was dispensational, that he had a son that went to Gordon Conwell instead of Dallas Theological Seminary. You (laughs) You just grow up watching your parents get slapped around by people. And I don't know, Nathan, it's like we have to be willing we have to be willing for God to be God and for us to, to be not. Um, I, I, go ahead. I have seven kids, nine and under, and when I go home, at least one or two of them are going to need spankings before the night's done. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have a choice. And, and that's good training and good discipline. And when you spank them, make no mistake about it, you think that God has every right to spank me. That's right. Every father that disciplines his child disciplines his child in the light of his own sin or in the darkness of his own sin. And so what are we going to do? I think I think Lloyd-Jones, I think, said it, that the life of a Christian is made up of ever new beginnings. 
or that faith is keeping the snake still under your heel. And the first snake we keep still is our hopelessness over our own sinful motives. That's one of the things I so despair about the Reformed Church today, is that if you ever accuse somebody of having bad motives in what they've done, not only are they wrong, but their motives were bad. They were trying to escape persecution. It seems like the most obvious thing in the world. The Apostle Paul says it all the time in the epistles, right? And they have a hissy fit. Are you telling me that I, are you, are you imputing my motives? Are you claiming to be able to see inside what my, you know, it's like, dude, All I'm trying to think is what would motivate me to make that compromise you just made? And it seems pretty obvious to me that you did it because you wanted to flatter people and you wanted to escape persecution in the cross. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says at the end of Galatians, don't anybody give me any hassle because I bear on my marks. On my body. On my body, the the brand marks, you know, of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I think as we get older... And we have people attack us and 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 attack us. We have people attack us anonymously. We have people attack us directly. We have people attack our doctrine while claiming that it's not us. We have our wives not attacking us, but disciplining us and rebuking us and admonishing us. We have our children, when they leave the home, living out loud our sins in front of other people, and we can no longer control them, <laughs> you know? We, we have all these things that we suffer in this life, but this is the discipline of Hebrews 12, that God says it's not, it's painful at the time, but it produces a harvest of righteousness. And Nathan, I'll say one other thing to you. The older you get, the more you'll be able to forget yourself. And as you forget yourself the more helpful you'll become. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't engage in self-examination, and I won't refer to it as morbid introspection, which so many people who are Reformed today do. You know, they say, well, you shouldn't. Just live in grace, live in grace, brother. And then I see their lives, and they're completely ungraceful. They never shame themselves or anybody else for any of the most horrid sins. They never preach to the conscience. They never apply the text of Scripture. They never, you know, have any... Any evil that they oppose, other than the evil of big brotherism, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the story of the prodigal son, or moralism, you know. But as you get older and people hit you and punch you and, and laugh at you, scorn you, mock you, the godliness grows through that. That's the suffering that leadership must have to grow. My, I, did I say at the beginning that my dad used to say that criticism is a manure that Christians grow best in? And I think that we need to not just laugh and smile at that, but embrace it. Read the anonymous letters. Yeah, it shouldn't be anonymous. Yeah, there's a lot of pulled punches in the letter. But there's always truth to it, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Does that help you at all, Nathan? Yeah. Well, you kind of have to say yes when you're being recorded. (laughs) (laughs) No. I mean, I've I've seen it. I have been able to be more more self-forgetting or more other remembering maybe that's a better way to god put it. remembering. god remembering yeah yeah um as i've gotten older yeah um so yeah i believe it i believe it yeah this work is not easy but you know you look at jesus saying to his father in the gospel of john you know and i know this isn't a quote but it's like he says dude don't you realize that I'm here to do the work of my father. You know, I'm not speaking on my own authority, you know, and it's just this relentless theme of, and I'm sorry, but I live in, in music. Joyful the song, words go around, father to son to son. Now, I'm quoting Freddie Mercury, Queen. And it is joyful, and it does go around, and it goes from father to son to son. This is the work that Christ did among us. This is the work that we're to do in the church. You are to carry to the next generation faithfully the truths that Pastor Max and Jody, Pastor Jody and Pastor Lucas and all of the elders of this church have put into you. And then it's your job to find faithful men to pass it on through. This work is difficult work, but there's nothing you'll like more than doing it because you're taking over the work that your father has given you, okay? And I'm one of them, but I'm only one of them. And so forget about what people think of you. Forget about the pain. 
and just glory in carrying on the work that the Father gave the Son, and the Son in turn gave to the apostles and the disciples, and the disciples in turn gave to Timothy. And Timothy and generation, 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 you stand in a long line. And when you get done and you're put in the grave, the only thing that you live for is to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And when he says it, you'll know he's only talking about the righteousness of Christ in you. You know, well done. How does the Apostle Paul say at the same time, literally at the same time, I am the chief of sinners and now it awaits for me to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. How does that work? I don't know. (laughs) Well, listen, um, I, I don't know if this is useful. And again, I don't want to flatter you. But I don't know how I would bear my life right now without you men. Nobody other than homosexuals have said thank you to me for this book. (laughs) You know, and to have you men willing to stand and say this needs to be read and, and do a podcast or something, I'm very grateful for it. The joy that men have in their sons is unbelievable. I love being your son. (laughs) (laughs) we'll be back next week sound of sanity was produced by nathan alberson like all fine warhorn products executive produced by jacob mensel and nathan alberson until next time stay sane